to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast, which features Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group professionals and expert guests discussing their insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. My name is Robin Hoffman. I'm a Senior Compliance and Credentialing Manager in Barry Dunn's Healthcare Practice Group. I am very pleased to be joined for this episode by three colleagues, Manager Nicola Church, Senior Manager Cheryl Crush, and Manager Natalie Lawman. The title of our podcast for today is Implications for Medicare Compliance as the COVID Public Health Emergency Ends. But before we get into our discussion, I have a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations that engage Barry Dunn for compliance and other services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for any government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. And now it's my pleasure to introduce my colleagues to our listeners. Nicola, you are a certified fraud examiner, which I find incredibly impressive, and you bring extensive background in internal audit and Medicare cost reporting to our listeners. You have produced a series of articles for Barry Dunn, uh, most recently about the Medicare proposed rule for fiscal year 2024 for hospital inpatient prospective payment systems and for long-term care hospitals, PPS. I also enjoyed reading the Medicare final rules summary that you provided for fiscal year 2023 for inpatient rehab facilities, PPS, and for inpatient psychiatric facilities, PPS. We are incredibly fortunate to have you join us today, Nicola. Can you please share some additional highlights about the types of services that you offer here at Barry Dunn? And thanks for having me. Um, some of the type of services we offer is preparing and reviewing cost reports, and that includes DISH and bad debts. And um, so anything involving the cost report is pretty much, you know, on the table for us. <laughs> thanks very much. And Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. Speaking as one nurse to another, can you believe that we are finally reaching the end of the COVID public health emergency on May the 11th? It is a privilege to have you join us today to talk about Medicare requirements as the public health emergency ends. You serve as our Director of Clinical Documentation Improvement, and as you know, I am awestruck by the number of certifications that you have achieved from professional organizations. Might you share just a couple of vignettes about the types of services that you provide for Barry Dunn's clients? Thank you, Robin. Thanks for asking me to participate. Um, I started my healthcare career many, many moons ago. I won't say how long. Um, as a nurse in Maine and Connecticut, working in various clinical settings, such as acute care setting, physician 
private practices, and SNPs, just to name a few. I've worked for several Connecticut-based HMOs as a manager of the prior off department, as well as a vendor service manager, as well as the Connecticut State Medical Society for many years, providing documentation reviews for over 7,000 affiliated network practitioners and supporting quality initiatives through various committees. I hold many, as you stated, several uh, certifications through the Academy, American Academy of Professional Coders, and the American Institute of Healthcare Compliance. And I'm not going to go through those, but uh, there, there are a few. So what is my role now at Barry Dunn? I'm a senior manager, director of clinical documentation improvement, where I work very closely with Natalie and together we work with attorneys whose clients are involved in federal and state audits, and we work very hard to poke holes in those audits <laughs> so that clients don't have to pay back quite so much of the money that initially was requested. We also work with clients under a corporate integrity agreement with the Office of Inspector General, and these clients have chosen Barry Dunn to be their independent review organization. And we also do a lot of practitioner education on documentation and correct coding. Thanks so much, Cheryl. Natalie, we're thrilled to have you join us again for today's podcast. You have an impressive array of certifications and you bring expertise to our clients who have been audited by commercial health plans and by government payers. Might you inform our listeners about some of the other type of services that you offer Barry Dunn's clients? Thanks, Robin. Um, I've worked in healthcare compliance for over a decade and focus on revenue compliance. Uh, and in the past, in many large health systems in both Connecticut and Massachusetts. At Barry Dunn, we help our clients with their auditing of documentation, coding, and billing, as Cheryl mentioned. And it's nice that we work on both sides of the spectrum, both with clients who are being proactive with their audits and looking to improve their clinical documentation, and also those who are being audited by the government. I'm excited to talk to you today about the end of the PHE. Thanks so much, Natalie. Nicola, when we talked a couple of weeks ago about Medicare and the end of the public health emergency on May the 11th, you mentioned some requirements for Medicare cost reporting and bad debt. Might you explain this process to our listeners? Well, during the PHE, um, some providers could request ex exceptions to the RHC productivity and also for like bad debts. You couldn't bill right away because at that time we weren't sure how to bill COVID. Um, so there was, you know, the time of billing, there was a little bit um, extension in that of what that time of billing was because of trying to bill for the COVID expenses. Um, so those were some things that were happening um, during PHE, aside from the waivers that were signed um, by CMS. Thanks. Another thing that we had talked about was during this public health emergency, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services granted what are called, and I'm going to do like air quotes here, blanket waivers to certain categories of healthcare provider organizations. Might you let our listeners know about some of these waivers, such as CMS is granting a waiver to the requirement 
for a three-day prior inpatient hospitalization for Medicare coverage of a skilled nursing stay. Also, didn't CMS waive some requirements for critical access hospitals as well? Yes, um, that is correct. So one of those um, waivers for the critical access was the 96-hour rule. So effective after um, May 11th, that 96-hour rule, it'll be more, it'll be back into effect. Um, so that is something that the cause need to start pay- paying attention to um, as along with the 3A prior hospitalization coverage for the, the SNFs as well. Okay. And, and cause are critical access hospitals, right? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much. Get used to those acronyms. <laughs> I know. We, we frequently say in our area, uh, acronyms are us. <laughs> Cheryl, during the public health emergency, the Secretary of Health and Human Services used the waiver authority to permit interactive telecommunication systems to furnish telehealth services. Boy, you talk about a sea change. I was in a provider organization when the public health emergency began. So there was an incredible change that took place in the clinical care delivery areas and in the compliance department. So during the public health emergency, Medicare enrolled patients have been able to receive Medicare telehealth services. Many clinicians and their support staff are uncertain as to how long Medicare will continue to permit telehealth services. Can you please clarify this for our listeners? And can you point them to some valid sources of information about Medicare's requirements for telehealth? Sure. Well, I think um, the first thing to, to really cover is telehealth includes services provided through telecommunication systems. For example, it's computer and phones, and it allows healthcare providers to continue to care for patients remotely in place of an in-person office visit. I think the requirements for telehealth um, are at the clinical documentation level, meaning there are elements that must be documented in the clinical note so that payment for these services is not at risk meaning you get to keep what you were paid or what you were reimbursed. The PHE highlighted those populations that were especially at risk and their inability to independently use technology, my mother being one of them. (laughs) Medicare beneficiaries will continue to be able to access telehealth services in any geographic area, They can be in their homes and receive telehealth services without traveling to a facility. Certain telehealth visits will stay, will still be allowed um, to be delivered as audio only, meaning telephone only. So I think it's a, you need to really um, keep track of the list on the Medicare website. And I'll give you that in just a minute. Um, It's highly recommended that practices check with the Medicare Advantage plans that they participate with to determine coverage for telehealth services. And I I think the big thing here is to remember that Advantage plans have to offer their Medicare members at least the same level of service as if they were covered under straight Medicare. They can provide enhancements, but they have to at least cover the same level. Some very good resources are the Medicare site for the most up-to-date codes 
and improved methods of delivery, audio, video, or just audio. And I'm going to give this to you, but I'll give you a hint. So it's cms.gov slash Medicare slash Medicare general information slash telehealth, blah, blah, blah. So if you're like me, just Google Medicare telehealth codes and the site will pop up for you. Um, it will be the first one that you can select. The current list originated, it's updated every year. So the current one was originated on 1-1-2023. And as of today, was last updated on February 13th. For Medicaid coverage, it differs from, it differs from state to state. Most states have expanded Medicaid coverage for telehealth during the COVID-19 public health emergency. For instance, many states are now allowing telehealth services via telephone, electronic, and virtual means. Home is the originating site for telehealth. Coverage and pay parity for telehealth services and asynchronous telehealth services. The best place to find information by state is to visit the Center for Connected Health Policy. They are our National Health Resource Center, and they are very good at tracking changes both at the federal and state level. Their site, this one's a little easier, is cchpca.org, and they're an excellent resource. Thank you so much. You have really given us a wealth of information there. I really appreciate that. Natalie, um, in thinking about the public health emergency, COVID testing, oh my goodness, COVID testing. During the pandemic, Medicare has been covering a Medicare enrollee's first COVID test without requiring an order from a physician or other practitioner. In other words, a lab did not need to receive an order from a doctor in order to process a patient's first COVID test. However, during the pandemic, repeat COVID tests have required an order. Now, as of May the 11th, when the public health emergency ends, can you let us know, will a physician or other Medicare practitioner need to order a Medicare-enrolled patient's first COVID test that is performed by a lab? Might you also let our listeners know a little bit about whether FDA-authorized diagnostic COVID serology testing will continue to be covered by each of the regional Medicare administrative contractors. As you know, we have a number of listeners to our podcast here at Barry Dunn who span across the United States. So I'm wondering, Natalie, if you can share with our listeners what is the best way for someone in another region of the United States, for instance, outside of New England, to go about confirming who their Medicare regional administrator contractor is. Sure. So as you said, during the PHE, CMS relaxed its requirements for orders for the first test. But as we're seeing now, many of these flexibilities are coming to an end. As an auditor, I would tell providers to reflect back to pre-COVID times when ordering diagnostic tests and to document an order with the appropriate diagnosis code. Uh, we're looking for that order during an audit, and if for whatever reason the order wasn't available, we're looking in the provider's note that shows the intent to order that test. 
There should always be a medically necessary reason for the test, such as exposure to COVID or signs or symptoms. A Medicare provider should review all of the Medicare published information explaining which waivers are coming to an end and when. If a provider is unsure of who their MAC is, CMS has a website titled, Who Are the MACs? And that's M-A-C that lists um, all the states and the specific uh, contractor. Thanks so much, Natalie. You know, as we were talking amongst ourselves over the past week, I think that, you know, we've been reflecting how during the public health emergency, there has been significant frankly, unprecedented staffing turnover um, in healthcare organizations, not only among the clinician staff and the clinical support staff, but also in what I call non-patient facing staff members. I'm wondering what are some steps, and I'm going to pose this out to each of you, what are the steps that a healthcare organization should take that have seen big turnovers in departments such as finance, billing, government reporting, and coding departments. How can a healthcare organization deal with any gaps in what I call institutional memory? There are people who maybe work for a healthcare organization now that never worked in healthcare prior to the pandemic. So what can organizations do to really enhance their new staff members' knowledge about Medicare compliance and Medicare rules. And also, as Natalie said, people are having to sort of go back and, and reframe and go, okay, what were we doing prior to March of 2020? So, um, Nicola, do you have some thoughts about what finance and billing and government reporting departments might do? Yeah, I think um, to a great start would be at the CMS's website, um, CMS.gov coronavirus slash waivers has the information on all the coronavirus, the PHU waivers that were going on. And that's, you can also click on what facility you are and they'll tell you the waivers that that were applied for those facilities. Um, So that's a great starting point. Also um, for cost reports, there's the regulations are on CMS's website under regulations and guidance under manuals, the paper manuals. Um, That's a great place to start for how to, you know, cost report instructions um, that are currently in place. Thanks so much. Cheryl, I'd like to hear your thoughts about what organizations can do as they're looking at what may be some training needs for their coding departments to get sort of back to the old rules of Medicare, if you will. Um, Sure, Robin, this is kind of a loaded question. I don't know about (laughs) anybody else out there, but I know when I go to my physician, they're always asking, do you know anybody that's looking for a job? So we know that there's a big deficit out there. And institutional memory, which includes retaining intangible information, is a bit tricky. This is where knowledge and experience lie with our veterans, veteran employees, me being one of them. And they can add great value to a company. Retaining these employees is key to keeping that knowledge and experience. And we know, we all know that some companies are better at this than others. This is where... Yeah. 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 And, you know, I mean, I think again about 
the types of services that Barry Dunn offers, which each of you have described the work that you do, I think that's where a trusted advisor or someone such as Barry Dunn may be very helpful to a healthcare organization that's dealing with, you know, staffing gaps, training needs. Um, Natalie, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this question. What can organizations do to sort of bring everybody up to where they need to be in terms of knowledge around uh, coding and Medicare compliance as of May the 11th? I think um, if you designate someone in a compliance department who can serve as uh, the main, you know, key contact who can share the list of helpful links to all employees um, and just maintain this, the information that's required of all these changes that are happening. I think we also encourage organizations to create protocols and policies to assist less seasoned employees. Uh, using external sources for information can assist with adding to institutional memory, such as outside counsel, consultants like us, to name a few. And let's not forget the use of technology and tools such as a company intranet or um, the cloud to keep all this information readily available for all employees. Thanks so much, Natalie. As we wrap up our conversation today, I would like to invite Nicola, Cheryl, and Natalie to each offer our listeners one, I'll call it critical high priority compliance recommendation for Medicare enrolled clinicians and healthcare organizations as the COVID public health emergency comes to an end on May the 11th. Um, new times and uh, what is the, the new normal as of May the 11th of 2023? Nicola, I'd love to hear what you would see as being a critical recommendation for healthcare organizations. I think it's critical, you know, to check your source document, which is like cms.gov. I mean, I think that's an important place to find some of your information about some of the changes that are going on. And certainly, if you know, have questions still, feel free to reach out to us or whoever um, you work with, and we'll be happy to help and get you on the track. Awesome. Thank you. And Cheryl, your thoughts? Um, well, I think the first most important thing is everybody needs to keep the, their eye on the ball. Um, if if we learn nothing else from 2020, with all the changes that were coming out from Medicare and Medicare rules, that they were rapidly changing that was making our heads spin. So as a clinical documentation specialist, I would focus on doing random medical record reviews to first um, confirm that all the, the um, regulations for telehealth services are documented. And sometimes the easiest way to do that is just to look at the template within your EHR to make sure that you've captured all the required elements and then randomly review the coding associated with these services to make sure that you're meeting the documentation meets the description of the code. Thank you, Cheryl. Natalie, your thoughts on this question? What's a critical high priority recommendation that you would offer our listeners? 
I would say to perform periodic risk assessments, specifically related to those that were affected by waivers. So take a look at what services were affected, what's changing, and as Cheryl said, perform these um, periodic reviews of documentation, coding, billing to make sure you uh, mitigate any risks that you have identified. Thanks so much. Again, I would like to thank Nicola, Cheryl, and Natalie for sharing their insights. We've reached the conclusion of our podcast today, which I think was a really informative one about the impacts of the close of the public health emergency on Medicare cost reporting, on blanket waivers for skilled nursing facilities and critical access hospitals, and the timelines for Medicare's continued flexibility for its definition of direct supervision using real-time audiovisual technology, and requirements that pertain to lab testing. Because the expiration of the COVID pandemic has such broad implications for healthcare organizations, we're going to host an additional podcast, which will focus specifically on the impacts to a healthcare organization's revenue cycle. And we will talk about the what is called in the public uh, parlance as the air quotes, unwinding of the Medicaid continuous eligibility provision that was in force during the public health emergency. On behalf of Nicola, Cheryl, Natalie, and myself, we thank you for listening to this episode of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Insights Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. We welcome our listeners' questions and feedback about the ideas we've discussed in this episode, and we would value receiving your suggestions for topics that we should consider for our future Healthcare Compliance Podcast. Many thanks. Thanks.